Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. So last week, just a quick word, last week, we were putting extra chairs out in the narthex for people who kind of rolled in in the first 10 minutes. And so if you have a little bit of space around you, just sort of stay aware of people who may be coming in as we begin and, you know, smile and say you're glad they're here, even if they're late. Um, so we get everyone to fit in. You know, I, these pews are meant to seat about six people. That's tight. So if you have four people in the pew, you're probably safe. If you have less than four people, I promise you can fit a fourth. So we will make room for everybody. So come on in. We will definitely make room for you. We've got, oh, we've got a lonely pew right here. I see it. You can come right down here. We've got space for at least two or three more people. Come on down. Thank you, thank you. I know I grew up where the ushers would stand in the front and they'd be like, <laughs> you know, look like air traffic control. It was great. So we will do that. Come on in. A few announcements before we get rolling. First, just a couple things coming up. We've got a new series that we are calling Faith in Action. It's a speaker series, and our first one's going to be on October 17th in the evening. This is a speaker series that is being held in memory of Shelley Vescovo. So for those of you who know, Shelley spent decades working with adult formation and small groups, and she was wonderful, and she passed away, and we wanted to just recognize her ministry. And so this Faith in Action series will be occasional. It's not specifically every month or every other month sort of thing, but it will be occasional throughout the years. And we've got flyers for the very first one that are in the rear of the chapel on the table. So grab one if you're interested. In addition, next spring, late April, early May, Eric Lyles is going to be leading a pilgrimage to the great cathedrals of England. And so if you are interested in seeing some of those churches, there are also brochures for the trip that identify all of the itinerary that I'd love for you to grab on your way out. And of course, both of these things are on our website. So you don't even have to take the paper if you don't want to. If you visit our website, you'll get all that information, can register and RSVP and all that good stuff. Also, for those of you here, members of St. Michael, you know that October tends to be the time when we make plans for our budget for next year. We call this stewardship, but it's not just fundraising. It's an opportunity for us to actually make a gift, make an investment in the ministry that we do here at St. Michael. And so for the St. Michael members in the room, I want to make sure that you know that we are doing a number of things this year. First off, we'll be preaching about it. We'll have tables out on Sundays, and we are building a gratitude tree. You all know in September, we did those grace journals, and we transitioned from grace, which is just recognizing God's presence, to gratitude. How are we grateful for what God is doing in the world? And we want to make that kind of gratitude tangible. Not only should it be daily at home in your journals, but we are building a gratitude tree on the windows of the garden cloister. And so we've got these leaves, which are stickers, that we want you to fill out, actually write on these leaves what you are most grateful for throughout the week. 
and we will put these leaves up on the tree. And if you haven't seen, the tree has begun to take shape outside the garden cloister next to the church. And so it's a fun thing to run by and see, and we will build this over the month of October. So you're encouraged to stop by these tables on Wednesdays throughout the week, but especially on Sundays, so you can fill out these leaves. This is a really neat thing to do with children. So if you've got children in your life, talk about how we can be grateful for what God is doing and have them stop by and fill out a leaf. And when they fill out the leaf, then they can come back the next time they're here and hunt for their leaf on the tree. It's like a game. So do do this. It's great for us and it's great for the children. For those of you who are not members of St. Michael, know that we want, first off, we want you to be, but no judgment, that's fine. We, would love, we want you to come to Bible study even if you go to church somewhere else on Sundays. But if you want to help support the ministry here at St. Michael, you are very welcome to do that too. And you can make a gift. We actually have people who plug in during the week who do make annual gifts to the church because they appreciate the ministry that we do here. So you are welcome to join us in that effort. You can make one-time gifts. You can, I hope you will take a magazine with you on your way out if you haven't yet, just to see the stuff that we do here. Because even if this isn't gonna be your Sunday home, it may be a place where you plug in and your generosity with the ministries that we do can continue to help transform you as disciples of Jesus. And so these are good things. And I appreciate everyone who supports the ministries here. Now let's open with a prayer and we'll get rolling into Bible study. Yes, ma'am. No. Go ahead. Keep asking your question. Oh, that's a good question. See, it's fun when you wear a microphone, you can keep talking when you're in the other room. Um, so if you want to make a gift to the Faith in Action series in memory of Shelley, that's something you can just make to the business office. So if you just put in the memo line of a check, for Faith in Action, or you can put Shelley's name if you don't remember the name of the series. Either is fine, and people have made gifts in order to help support this series so that we're able to give honorariums to the speakers and to provide you know, snacks at the event because these are meant to be kind of social moments too because if you knew Shelley, you knew that although she was certainly an intellectual, she loved people connecting to each other. And so she really loved people having dinner together, praying together, spending time together. And so we want this Faith in Action series to kind of represent a more whole look at her ministry, which was both intellectual and social. So feel free to give a gift. That is great. Um, those gifts can go straight to our business office with either Shelley's name or Faith in Action in the memo line. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we come together today with gratitude in our hearts for everything that you do through us and for us, especially here at St. Michael and in your city of Dallas. May you inspire and fill us up, leaving us refreshed to be the hands and feet that you call us to be in the world you love. Be with our friends who are not able to be with us today. Put your healing touch upon those who need it most. And keep us ever mindful of what we can do to help show your love to every person. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with a few questions that I received last week. And 
I'm not entirely sure what last week was, but you hit me with lots of questions, and some of these are a little hard. So we're going to, I want to answer the questions I get, so we're going to start to run through this. First is a, I guess a relatively easy one, although it's not easy, but it's simple. What's happening when God rests? What does that really mean? So I will say that this is an easy one because I can tell you, I don't know, um, but how we have perceived this idea of rest is that even God needs to take stock. Even God needs to pause. We can all be very busy, and in our busyness, we can lose sight of what is most important. And remember, these are stories that are being told to explain the world. So this as a parable of sorts, I think it's easy for us to say that the Israelite people wanted to mark their faithfulness to God by stopping all the busyness of the world. And so for them, they received God's instructions of a Sabbath as one day when they are meant to not do worldly things, to just focus on God. And so as they build out the story of creation, it makes sense that they would mirror God's command to keep the Sabbath by having God keep the Sabbath himself. And so I think that's really what's happening with that God rests moment. We should know, you know, a careful reading shows that there is no kind of God resting in Genesis 2. So the first creation story has this very clear almost legality or rationality to it. Each day a thing happens, it was, you know, evening and morning, and God said it was good. And day one, day two, day three, day four, and day seven, God rests. Boom. The end. Genesis 2 doesn't really wrestle with that kind of structure. Instead, Genesis 2 tends to make God out to be an artist, creating this canvas and this palette of beauty. So it's important for us to take both together. The literal God resting is not really the point. The point is we are supposed to rest, and God models that rest for us. That is likely not a terribly satisfying answer, but I'm going to stop there. So second, ah, I love this one. I got one, two, three, three different questions with this same kind of idea. So the question is, can you be a morally good atheist who does not choose God? Or can we be good but not believe in God? You know, that was three different questions about that kind of thing. So what's one of the classic questions they pose to people in seminary is, you know, is Gandhi in heaven or not? Because Gandhi absolutely, explicitly, rooted his life in the teachings of Jesus. But he famously said, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. So when Gandhi went to England for law school, he discovered Jesus and was so deeply inspired by what Jesus did that when he went back to India and all the nonviolent things that he did in order to secure Indian independence, 
was all because of Jesus. I mean, people like Martin Luther King Jr. went to India, slept in the house where Gandhi lived in order to sort of be inspired by his life that was rooted in Christ. For someone like that to not be received by God does not make sense to me. And I will put that in theological context. We can very easily make God out to be like a magician, where we say the right words in the right order with the right posture, and poof, we go to heaven. That is not what God intends. We are not meant to go through a litmus test of faith. God loves us, and God wants us to love back and to love each other. That is not a test. That is not a moment. That is not a magic spell. That is a way of life. It's a way of being. We are to be God-like and Christ-like. It is very hard for me to reckon when good people do live their life like Christ and yet do not say the words that somehow God is going to judge them for not going about the right formula to be saved. And so I'm going to leave it there. Again, this is one of those questions where I don't know. I mean, we don't know. But if I look at what Jesus does and really what Jesus says, there is no kind of litmus test. I think that what we perceive as having to say the right words in the right way benefits more the institution of religion than it does actually fulfill the call of God. And I say that as a person who lives in the institution of religion. But we are smart enough, and I think sophisticated enough, to understand that a lot of what religion has done over time has been in its own interest. And I don't, I want to give those leaders the benefit of the doubt that they thought they were doing the right thing. But in that classic, you know, once you know better, you should do better sort of way, I think that part of what we're dealing with right now in the world as we shift into the 21st century is an acknowledgement of the faults, but also trying to keep the truths so that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. We keep what is core and best, and we let go of the things that really have been put in place by human imperfection. And rules really make up the lowest common denominator of morality. And I think that we should try to be more comfortable with the vagueness of just love and not try and put too many rules around it. Ha <laughs> ha, that sounds, man, I sound Baptist sometimes, don't I? Okay. okay, so let's keep going. And sorry, ask more questions. I'll just do the best I can with these. Um, did I say that there's no place, that, that heaven is not an actual place where Christian loved ones are somewhere playing the harp? That's a funny thing to say. Um, 
and where we go and we die and all that sort of stuff. So we, we as human people can only use language that makes sense to us. And so when we try to define something divine with temporal language, or I'll put that another way, when we try to explain God within our human capacity, we will always fall short. Just always. So anytime we try to explain God with our own limited language, we will not get it right. We can try, we should try, but we should start from the place of knowing that it's never going to be complete and whole because we just, we just don't have the capacity to do it. And so when we talk about heaven, for a very long time, there was no knowledge of what's up there. And so it kind of made sense that Jesus went up there. Jesus literally, in Acts, went up. All right, so if we remember the, the beginning of Acts, Jesus is meeting, he's resurrected, he is meeting with his disciples, they go to a hill, and Jesus literally goes up into the sky. So it makes great sense that everyone went, huh, where'd he go? Well, he probably went to heaven. I mean, I get it. That sounds good. Now we know Jesus is not somehow like floating in the clouds, right? I mean, we have figured that out, and I think we should be comfortable saying that Jesus is not somehow above us, just out of sight, but sort of like flying around like Superman. That's not what happens. So then we have to necessarily say, then what is this heaven place? I think, and Genesis 3 gives me a chance to kind of vet this a little bit, what I want to do is bookmark this idea to say the perception that Jesus speaks of heaven as somewhere else could potentially be flawed. That Jesus, when he speaks of heaven, is really speaking about what could be here. That is an important concept that we can vet a little bit through Genesis 3. If we play that out a bit, then I live, my faith is defined by heaven not being the carrot at the end of a stick or that promise of what I get after I die, but rather an aspiration for what we can actually do now here. I'll say more about that, but just kind of bookmark that idea. And then we got a question, explain what I said about there being a mention of marriage or husband and wife in the Bible. So let me, vet, let me flesh that out a little bit more. What I said was the idea of husband and wife in describing the man and the woman in the garden is not quite consistent the whole time. The man and the woman are referred to as the man and the woman. We often put this idea of husband and wife on top of the man and the woman. And I mean, functionally speaking, that's not, it's not wrong to do that. I want us to simply read it for what is there and know what is there and what is not. And what is not there is that Adam and Eve were ever called husband and wife. 
What is there is there is a man and a woman, and woman was made from man. Therefore, husbands leave their families and cling to their wives. That is what Scripture actually says. It doesn't say Adam and Eve got married, and they were now husband and wife. It says because God has created this male-female, therefore, and that therefore means nowadays, that is why a husband leaves his family and clings to his wife, which is problematic on its own because that is not how it worked. The wife left her family and clung to her husband's family. So um, it's confusing because even within the context of the people who wrote that, that's not accurate. That's just not what happened. So it's odd. It could be that that line was just jammed in there because someone needed to say something about marriage. To play that all the way out, whatever, let's do it. So to play that all the way out, you go find me a place when Jesus really, if you take everything that Jesus says about how we are supposed to be in the world, how we are to follow him, how we are to act to one another, how we are to live, there is almost nothing that Jesus says about marriage. So much so that if you pull out a gospel text for a wedding, what is often the gospel text that is used at a wedding? Jesus' miracle at Cana, right? So the best we can do around Jesus's affirmation of marriage is to say that Jesus attended a wedding? That's, that's not that great. But that's really all we have. Jesus went to a wedding, so therefore Jesus must then think all of these things about marriage? Well, that's a stretch. Because if we remember that story, Jesus just attended because Mary wanted him to. I mean, the whole scene is such a great mother-son moment because Jesus is at this wedding. Jesus probably doesn't want to be at this wedding, but Mary said, these are your, these are your people. You need to go to wedding. And Jesus is like, fine, mom, I'll go to the wedding. And so they're at the wedding and they run out of wine. And Mary says, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Jesus says, what does it have to do with me? And Mary doesn't even respond to him. Mary says to the steward, do whatever he says, because you know what that means. That's what the mother says to her son when the mother says, like, do it, right? I mean, that is what Mary says. Like, do not mess with me, right? Now, um, and so it's like Mary trots him out like a, like a party trick, right? They're out of wine, so Jesus is like, fine, mom, you know, and just like makes all this good wine, and everyone freaks out, and they're like, wow, you saved the good stuff for last, and so this whole story, that's it. That's all we got. I mean, that's really the moment that Jesus has anything to do with marriage, yet... Jesus over and over and over again encourages people to do things that would absolutely not be what we would consider family values, right? If we're going to chase down this rabbit of whatever Christian family values is that people trot out all the time in order to make their point, what Jesus does do is he pulls his disciples away from their families and leaves them 
encourages them not, he did not get married, nor did he encourage anyone to ever get married. He actually encouraged his followers to leave their families and follow him. And in Matthew, he praises people who make themselves eunuchs in order to work toward the kingdom of God. Whatever that means, that's not marriage values, all right? And if you don't know what a eunuch is, they cut everything off, okay? So it's really to kind of play this out. What people say about Christian family values is nothing we see Christ doing in the Gospels. Just putting that out there, okay? So this is part of a very solid, critical reading of Scripture. Does that mean Jesus would disagree with strong marriages? No. But let us not then extrapolate out something to do with Jesus's very detailed opinion on marriage that does not exist. Clear? Right. Okay, so then here was my favorite question, because someone hates me. Um, <laughs> could you speak about Robert Jeffers' recent comment? <laughs> <laughs> about Democrats worshiping the pagan god Moloch. <laughs> so, I totally laughed out loud. Oh, it was so funny. Um, so, you didn't hear it? I'm sorry, because it's hard for me to even say it with a straight face. So, Robert, it's Jeffers, Jeffries? Jeffers, right? Okay, so he apparently went, went out a week or two ago. I had to look this up, because <laughs> in case you were wondering, I don't follow him. Um, and so I, I had to look up what this even was referencing, and apparently he spoke in Austin and said that, first off, he said, I can't even, that doesn't even matter. I'm not going to take the bait. So what he said about this is that it had to do with the context of abortion, and anyone who was pro-choice must be following the god Moloch, who is this ancient god that celebrated child sacrifice. And so he is drawing a connection between anyone who would be pro-choice as being in favor of child sacrifice. So what I really want to say is if you ever... This is what I want to say. Jesus is absolutely political and never partisan. We need to be very clear about this because that is a distinction that people do not make nowadays because it does not sell. So let me say it again. Jesus is absolutely political. You cannot read the Gospels with any sort of clarity and not understand Jesus is political all the time. People, Jesus was killed by the people in power because he was too political. 
That is actually what happened. So to say that politics should not be in church is really to not be following Jesus' lead. So I'm going to leave that there. And say, Jesus is not partisan. And whenever you hear someone use Jesus to make a partisan distinction, you should immediately put them in a category where they are manipulating their followers to a particular end that justifies their own opinions. That is what is happening when you hear someone stir up a particular aggressive point toward a partisan group of people. Don't let people mislead you into Jesus somehow being partisan in his call to follow. That is not what's happening. Jesus is absolutely an equal opportunity offender. He did not make anybody happy. And so Jesus is not here to make us happy. Jesus, we talked about this last year, right? One of the things I remember saying that really stirred up a lot of people is that Jesus is not invested in our happiness. That is not the point. If we look through scripture, Jesus is never doing or saying anything in order to make people happy. I mean, in fact, almost every time he deals with anybody, he's really, I don't know, confusing them, angering them, disappointing them, you name it. That is what Jesus is doing. It's just all the people he disappoints and angers who don't have power, can't do anything about it, the ones he disappoints and angers who do have power ultimately kill him. There is the gospel. All right. So we're not even going to go into that, man. So, oh man, I took too much time. Okay. So keep asking questions. I like them. It clarifies. But let's get into Genesis 3. So we have gotten through our two creation stories in Genesis 3 is often referred to as the fall. There are really four sections to Genesis 3. We're going to do them a little faster than I might have wanted to. We first got the temptations. And there's really temptation one and temptation two. There are two moments. Then there is God in the garden. Following God in the garden, we've got the pain of life. And finally, the very end, we've got expulsion. We're going to start with the temptations. This is an important moment for Christian theology in history because this ultimately shows how we have found ourselves in the messy world that we are in. So I will say it again. Remember, people were already living in the world, experiencing the world, and trying to understand why things are the way they are. So as they tell these stories, they are seeking to draw threads, logical threads, from the beginning to where they are now. So every time something, something happens like, now you will have pain in childbirth, that is not because somehow it wasn't painful at some point. 
but it's because every person knew that childbirth was painful. Holy crap, it's super painful. And so everyone is sitting there saying, why is it so painful? It's supposed to be what we do. We have to have children, so why is it so wicked? This is why. And so we have to read it almost backwards in order to understand the point of those stories. So I've said that before, so just keep that in your mind. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. As a reminder, the end of chapter 2 ends with, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Immediately comes, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, hey, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. In this moment, the serpent's, what, hanging out, and kind of slithers up to Eve and says, hey, so what did God say to you? And Eve holds her ground, right? The serpent's sort of saying, you sure you're not supposed to eat of anything that you don't want to eat? And Eve says, no, this is the rule. God said, we can eat of all these things, but we're not supposed to eat the fruit of that tree. Okay, in this moment, we get Eve's resistance to temptation. I'm sorry, let me first note. I will, for the sake of it, refer to Adam and Eve by their names. Eve is not named until the end of chapter 3. Adam is not named until the end of chapter 4. Right now, it's all just the man and the woman. They have no names. But because it is just easier to listen to, I will call them Adam and Eve, but I, I'm going to make a point about their names in a second. And so just note, they have no names right now. But Eve is talking to the snake, and she resists this temptation. And if we imagine what is happening here, God's created this perfect world. And God has created this perfect world that provides everything to these humans. And God simply says, go take care of it. And God's given them some helpers and they've got the animals. And I imagine it's like the beginning of Sleeping Beauty. Remember when she's like dancing through the forest and all the birds and the squirrels are like dancing with her and that sort of stuff. It's just lovely, right? Everything's going right. Everyone's having a good time. And then the snake comes around and is just kind of nipping with these ideas, planting these seeds of doubt. Are you sure that's the rule? Are you sure you're not supposed to be able to do that? And Eve resists for a bit. But that temptation becomes too overwhelming. The snake does not give up. And so if we look at verse 4, after Eve refuses the snake the first time, the snake says, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. This scene happens real fast. The snake says, can you eat everything? Eve says, no. And the snake says, well, sure you can. 
You can eat this stuff. Oh, well, you know why God doesn't want you to eat that fruit, don't you? Because God doesn't want you to be as powerful as him. When you eat that fruit, you become like God. And so the temptation to be like God is what ultimately causes them to stumble. The Israelites are in exile in Babylon. They perceive themselves of having gotten too big for their britches, as my grandma would say, and they lost everything they had because they believed in themselves too much. So now they are going through this soul-searching as a culture, and one of the truths they have landed on is that they need the humility that God intended to be the anchor of their whole identity. They became too prideful, and they lost everything. And so that pridefulness is being articulated here as trying to be like God. Yes, God created us in God's image, but we are not God. You know that old saying, what's the difference between humans and God? God never thinks he's us. So there is this sense that we naturally are tempted toward becoming like God. That's just human. What happens here in the garden is they resist that temptation for a bit, and then they give in. And Eve gives in, takes the fruit, eats, and her eyes are open, and then she gives this fruit to Adam, and he eats too, and they realize all of a sudden all of the things that seem imperfect, like they're naked. They were super happy for a time. They didn't mind. Then all of a sudden, that's a bad thing. And so they cover themselves up. The point of this story is not to sexualize anything. The point of the story is to say they were 100% vulnerable, and it was perfect. And then, when they tried to get to be more like God, they became insecure, and they began to cover themselves up. And this covering up is metaphorical as much as it is physical. They are beginning to put up barriers between each other and between them and God. And that's what we're going to see in the very next section. Questions about this first part? Oh yeah, good catch. Husband does, is not that word. So that's a, it says to her husband there, the Hebrew, does, the Hebrew word for husband is not the word that is used there. We could translate it. The Hebrew word there really means to her man. That sort of sounds strange. Then, then the woman gave the fruit to her man. I mean, it's not... That's fine, but they, they try to kind of round that off. In the Hebrew, the relationship is mutual ownership. That's important to note because it shifts. At the end of chapter 3, the man names the woman Eve. We know that someone naming someone else 
puts them in authority over them. So although we might find that to be a nice moment, finally she gets a name. No. What is happening there is the man is no longer mutual. The man is now the owner of Eve because he has named her. In this moment where it says the woman gave to her man, there is this sense of mutual ownership. Now we should at its best understand the term husband and wife in that capacity, right? There is a mutual ownership one to another. That ownership is not meant to be ugly. That's not meant to be coercive or aggressive or abusive or any of those things. It is meant to be, to imply, or maybe to make explicit that you now belong to each other. That is really what happens in a marriage. And so in English, the translation implied in husband is meant to reflect the ownership of the Hebrew. But that's not actually the Hebrew word for husband. It is the Hebrew word for the possessive of the other person. Is that good? Okay. So it's an important clarification because when I say, when I say there is no reference to certain things in Scripture, what I really mean is that in the original language, that is the case. When things get translated, certainly paraphrased, but when things get translated, nuance is lost. It just is, right? We don't have, in the Hebrew language, there is a neuter for pronouns. So God is not masculine. Well, English has no neuter. So God's either male or female in the language. And so the history has been that God has been male. Well, God is not male in Hebrew. God is neuter. And so we create problems for ourselves when we translate that are totally unintentional. But the limits of our language can ripple out and cause problems. Okay. God in the Garden, part two. So snake tempts the woman. The woman gives the fruit to her man. They realize they are naked. They cover themselves up, and then they hide. Look at verse 8. They, the man and the woman, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife, his woman, the man and his woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God called to the man and said, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The nakedness here is the vulnerability in front of God. There's something beautiful about God walking through the garden we should be careful that we do not anthropomorphize God in a way that makes God a human person. Even if we believe God became human incarnate in Jesus, in this moment, this is a parable meant to imply that at some time in the past, we were in this perfect unity with God, living in this perfect place. We just hung out in the evening together. 
It was great, right? How many of us love that evening breeze? We want to kind of sit on the dock and have a glass of wine. It's great. Can you imagine if we were like hanging out with God? Lovely. But when they eat the fruit or when they realize their vulnerability, they begin to back off. And as they back off, God still comes to look for them. We should absolutely read this story with God's omnipotence in mind. Where are you? God knew where they were, but God was asking. It's like a parent to a child. Parents ask their kids questions they know the answer to because they want the child to answer. There is something about speaking an answer that makes it tangible and real. If you know your child has lied about a thing, you're gonna ask that child to lie again, right? I mean, I have done it. When a child has lied and I've thought, did they just lie? I will ask them a question and I know they lied, but I really want them to lie with clarity, <laughs> right? And in that moment, you can sort of confess it, right? I mean, if you're caught in a lie and someone says, excuse me, what was that? You had, there's that split second where you can be like, oh, I'm actually, no, it didn't happen that way. I'm sorry, I should, you know, right? Or you double down and you say, that is exactly how it happened, right? And that sounds like a child. And that's kind of what's happening here with God is God says, where are you? God knows where they are. They're the two people behind the tree, right? I mean, this is like, it's like the worst hide and seek game ever. But God wants to give them a chance to come out from behind the tree because God loves them. And God doesn't want one bad choice to begin to cascade. And so God gives them a chance. Where are you? And they double down. So in this moment, God says, look at verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that is so great. I just, I just love it. She did it, right? You gave her to me and she gave me the fruit, right? It's so great. It is such a, that's so funny. Man, that is like the funniest moment in Genesis. Okay. It gets even better when Abraham multiple times tells people that Sarah is her, his sister so he doesn't get in trouble. I mean, it's just, it's one thing after another. It, it definitely, men do not look good. So here, God says, who told you you could eat from that tree? And it, Adam says, oh, it's not me, it's her. And then she says, it's not me, it's the snake. Right? So they're just passing the blame down the line. And then God says to the snake, you will now be cursed forever. This is a very interesting moment. In verse 14, right? God says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. God knows. God knows 
that the man and the woman chose to eat the fruit. It's not really the snake's fault. And yet, God curses the snake. It is not because this literally happened. It is because the people in Babylon know their imperfection got the best of them. Where does that imperfection come from? Because they're made in God's image, and God is not imperfect. The imperfection comes from the way that the world intercedes, all right? We are made in God's image, and yet we live in this imperfect world. And when the world begins to seep in, we can be tempted away from the perfection God intends for us. And God knows. So God curses this creature because, in essence, God acknowledges the imperfection of the world and the temptation that we all suffer. God also knows we are imperfect and that we will give in to the temptation. And that, my friends, is the entire story of Scripture. We, created in God's image, are imperfect in an imperfect world and need to be saved from that imperfection. There is our whole story. And the Israelites knew it. And so they tell this particular parable in order to put legs on the idea that our humanity is what gets in the way of our relationship to God. Questions about that before we jump ahead? I am running out of time. Yes. <laughs> Question is, am I saying that God knew that they weren't going to obey him? I'm going to answer that two ways. The first way is, I do not think this literally happened. Right? This is a story. This is a parable to explain a truth. So I do want to just name that and then say the Israelites definitely thought God knew that would happen because the story they are telling is God coming back time and again to get us. Over and over again, we stray, God comes and finds us and brings us back. And we stray and God comes and finds us and brings us back because they needed to very truly believe God was going to find them in the exile and bring them back. That is the heart of this whole story. They had been taken away. They were lost. And they needed in the deepest part of their souls to believe that God would come and find them and bring them back. Ooh, that gives me chills. That is, that's our faith. I mean, that is the story of Jesus, is that God comes and gets us and brings us back again and again and again. And so does God know us? I think the Israelites said yes. And that's good for me too. All right, so let's jump ahead 
Section three, pain of life. Verse 16, to the woman God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your man, and he shall rule over you. Ugh. It is not, it is not going well for the humans. God starts to tear things up. So God has made this perfect thing, and the humans have broken it. And so God said, all right, if you want to be like me, let's do it. And so God begins to cast, I want to say cast aspersions. I mean, God is effectively saying, now this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And everything we see here is just true of life. Do not read this as childbirth would have been such a cinch if God had not made it hard. That is not what this means. Instead, flip it 180 degrees and say, why is childbirth hard? Why do we have to toil in the ground in order to bring up food to sustain us? Why is life hard? Life is hard because we choose not God. That is what this story is telling us. Life becomes what it was intended to be when we choose God. That's the macro message here. We can keep going. Verse 17, where to the man God says, because you've listened to the voice of your woman and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Functionally, what God is saying here is, I made this perfect place that grew all the food you needed. Now, you will have to work with ground that will make you struggle. When the ground does not produce the fruit you need, that's on you. So the men now have to work hard and toil. The women now have to work hard to do the thing that they were put on earth to do. What is the one thing women cannot do? I mean, I'm sorry. What is the one thing women can do that men cannot do? have children, right? Women can work, and women did work, but only insofar as they could because the one thing they had to do because men couldn't is have kids. And of course, in the ancient world, I mean, ancient world, it still happens in places around the world today, you have to have enough children because half of them will die, and you have to have enough in order to work the land to make the food you need to live. So there is, children are not for our convenience. Children are necessary. And women now have to experience the pain of doing what is necessary in the same way that men have to go out and work. And this has ripples all over. You probably know about um, Jewish cleansing rituals that really were hard for women because part of it was you were unclean if you touched blood or were bleeding, and you were unclean for seven days after you stopped bleeding, which, do the math, ladies, that means at best you're clean half the time. And that's if your cycles are have some space between them. So we, it, this is hard for women to follow these cleansing rules, and... When you're pregnant, having given birth, nursing a child, all of that keeps you unclean. 
So men kind of have to do these other things because women necessarily have to bear children and when they do that, they can't then go do these other things. And so you begin to have this divergence of what really is men's work and women's work because of the physical reality of childbearing. Then you get these couple little funny moments. So Adam names Eve, and I've already said that's sort of unfortunate because that implies ownership. But Eve is the name given. And Eve means the living. And so even though there is this ownership moment, the name she receives is literally life. So Eve becomes the root of life. And so, yeah, there's ownership there. We can't throw that away. But there's a beautiful moment here where she is in essence, empowered, blessed to be the life giver. And we will see echoes of that with theological developments around the person of Mary. So if women are the life givers and Jesus is ultimately the life saver, that makes a very special place for his mother. And that's where we get a lot of the stuff around Mary in a lot of Christianity. Second cute thing is that God sews them some clothes. That's so nice. God literally makes them clothes out of skins. So we should not lose that they disobey God. God gives them a chance to fess up. They don't. And then God effectively creates or names all of these hardships and right afterwards makes them close because they were concerned about being naked. And so there is this almost simple humanity with that little verse where God still loves them and they're afraid of being naked. So God makes them close. That's beautiful. All right, questions about that before we... Oh, it's 11.30. And then they're cast out of Eden, the end. So, sorry, no questions real fast. One second. So, the final section, verses 22 through 24, God says they need to leave this perfect place. And so God sends them out from the garden. And God actually sets up a a defense to keep them from coming back in the garden. If you look at verse 24, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Not only are they sent out of the garden, but God puts guards at the entry of the garden to keep them from coming back in. That's pretty dynamic. I'm going to bookmark that because it bleeds right into Cain and Abel, which we will get to next week. And so we will finish the end of chapter 3 next week as we go into reality outside of Eden. Thank you all very much. Have a great week.